Let's pray together. Father, we pray that the wind of your spirit would blow through uh, this place this morning, that our hearts would be open, that our eyes would be open, that our minds would be open, that we would receive your word, that we would see Jesus, that you would make us one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again to all of you. So glad you're here. Uh, if this is your first time with us, or if, you're, uh, if this is your first time in a long time, we are in a series on the book of Philippians. And this morning, we began looking at the second chapter of the book of Philippians. So I encourage you to turn there, if you have a Bible with you, or one in front of you, and we'll be looking at verses one through five. In these verses, I believe whether we zoom out and look at them from 30,000 feet or whether we zoom in and look at them on the ground, what I believe we see here in these verses is yet another miracle of Jesus. Yet another example of Jesus doing what is absolutely impossible. Jesus joining together as one people, one unified church. He calls us to be one. And by the power of the gospel, he joins us together as one. But before we dig into Philippians, I want you to think back with me for a minute to the very beginning, to the very beginning of the Bible. First verse, first chapter, first page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. This is our very first glimpse of God the very first thing he tells us about himself, the first aspect of himself he reveals to us is that he is a God who does the impossible. He is a miracle-working God. He creates everything out of nothing. It's a miracle. And you know the rest of that story, that into the formless void of nothing, And into utter darkness, God speaks, Genesis 1, 3. And God said, what did he say? Let there be light. Let there be light. God simply said it. It's how easy it is for him. He says it. He says, let light shine out of darkness. And it happens. It's a miracle. And from that first page, first chapter, first verse, the Bible is God's book of miracles. He creates something out of nothing. Adam, out of dust. He leads his people through the Red Sea. Manna falls from heaven and on and on and on. The miracles go and then we arrive at a dark night in Bethlehem. The virgin conceives a son. The angels sing to shepherds. The darkness is shattered once again, then in a new beginning, in a second Adam, in the word made flesh, in the breaking through of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is a miracle. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see God's story of miracles continue on every page as Jesus walks through cities and towns and villages. And with every blind eye, Jesus heals. With every deaf ear that Jesus opens. With every dead person that Jesus raises, Jesus proves not only that he is God, but that because he is God, he can make what's wrong right again. He can take what's in disorder and set it in order. He can take what's broken and make it whole and make it one. And Jesus' crowning miracle after his death and resurrection and ascension, his crowning miracle is to join together 
a people for himself, whom he's reconciled to himself and through himself. And then by the power of the Spirit, he reconciles them to one another and he calls them his church. The church is a miracle. The church is a miracle. And the church has to be a miracle, doesn't it? We know this. If we spend any time around a church or in a church, if you've ever served on a committee, you know the church is a miracle for God to make people one, people who are so different from one another, Jews and Greeks, men and women, fishermen and doctors, people who'd like to watch football or would rather watch the ballet, Republicans and Democrats, people who put the toilet paper roll on the wrong way, <laughs> people who put it on the, the wrong way and the right way. He, he makes them one. He makes them brothers and sisters. He makes them into a family. And he does more than just pacify them so that they just kind of like each other. He joins them together. Uh, it almost makes the first miracle of creating the heavens and the earth sound easy. Uh, it almost makes parting the Red Sea in two seem like child's play. That God can take what's wrong and make it right. What's disordered, he puts in order. What's broken is joined together. And a people who are broken, a people who are at odds with each other, are joined together as the church. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the proclamation of a God who leads us from death into life, out of darkness into glorious day. And the crowning miracle of the gospel is a church that proclaims the gospel and lives out the gospel. And we see the power of this gospel when Jesus joins a church. Many of us here at Truro were surprised a few weeks ago when we pulled onto this property and we saw in this little corner lot that I think belongs to the county that they were putting up chain link fencing around it. We were kind of surprised. And then the next day, a bunch of huge individual pieces of concrete piping arrived and then massive machinery and massive piles of dirt. And many of those pieces are still out there. You can see them. Massive individual disconnected pieces of concrete piping. And currently they serve really very little purpose except for being a bit of an eyesore. But one day soon, those individual pieces that currently serve very little purpose will be joined together, will be put underground, and then they will serve their purpose. And the church is similar. We're a bunch of individual pieces, a bunch of individual concrete piping, and God joins us together and we realize our purpose and what an impossible miracle it is for God to do that. And we see this morning in Philippians 2 what happens when that happens. What takes place in a church when Jesus joins it together? In these opening verses here of the second chapter, we see what happens when Jesus joins a church. And the first thing that happens is we experience Jesus. The first two verses here of chapter 2, if you've got it open, are kind of like a call and a response. Verse 1 is the call. Verse two is their response. Verse one gives us what the fruit of the gospel is in a church. Verse two gives us the condition for us to experience that fruit. So Paul starts off verse one here in chapter two with sort of a rhetorical tool. He says, if there are any of these things in Christ, if. He's not saying these are possibilities of the gospel. He's not saying it's a there's a probability that these things are within the gospel. He's saying these are realities of the gospel. These are true things. 
true evidences of fruit of the gospel in the heart of a people. So when we read here, Paul in a second saying, if there is, we could also take him to be saying, since there is. It would be like if I got up here and I said, if the Bible is the word of God, we should listen to it. Or if I were to say, if Jesus is Lord, we should follow him. I'm not saying those are possibilities. I would be sort of setting it up in an if-then way. And that's what Paul does here in verse one and two. So first, the if. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, here's the then. Then, verse two, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So according to verse one here, what's the fruit of the gospel in a community, in a church? Encouragement in Christ. Comfort from the love of Christ. Participation in the spirit of Christ. Affection from Christ. Sympathy from Christ. These things that Paul lists are in Christ. They absolutely are realities of the fruit of the gospel. But how do we experience them in a church? Because they're not just ideas. They're not just nice ideas. Oh yeah, there's, there's love in Christ. Uh, there's, there's participation in the spirit of Christ. There's sympathy from Christ. Actually, it gets more real than that. We experience these realities of the gospel through one another. As God joins the individual pipes together, the gospel flows through the pipes. Encouragement in your community group, for example. Comfort from the prayer ministers, for example. Participation on a ministry team. Affection from a friend. Sympathy from a pastor. When you experience these things in the church, you're not just experiencing someone's nice manners. You're not just experiencing a a polite person. When you experience encouragement from the church, when you participate in the church, when you experience sympathy from the church, you're experiencing it from Christ. So this is the substance of the gospel. Fruits of the gospel present in a church because of Jesus, but even beautifully conveyed through one another, through the members of the body. And Paul says that the condition for this fruit to be experienced is unity. Verse two says, the beginning of it, to be of the same mind, be of the same mind. Now, what does that mean, to be of the same mind? Well, it doesn't mean we all think the same way, okay? Goodness. I mean, if we all thought the same way. First, that's impossible. Uh, Second, that would be really boring and terrible. And third, I quite like the way I think. Thank you very much. (laughs) And my guess is you quite like the, the way you think. Christians can have different opinions, and they do. Christians can have different opinions, and Christians should have different opinions, It doesn't matter what you say, you will never convince me that Brussels sprouts are worth eating. (laughs) I have my opinion. My opinion is right. You can deep fry them, boil them, hide them in fajitas. You can dip them in sweet tea. I don't care what you do. Brussels sprouts are disgusting. That's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. And you can have your opinion, uh, but you're wrong. I'm not going to think like you. You're wrong and I'm right. Um, Being of the same mind doesn't mean we think the same way. It means we're all looking in the same direction. It means we have the same fixed point of of reference. 
You have your opinions, I have mine. You have what you believe priority A, B, and C should be. Uh, I have what I think priority A, B, and C should be. And so as we walk together with our differences, uh, we're arm in arm with each other and we're walking with the same goal in mind, with the same fixed point of reference. After Paul says this, to be of the same mind, uh, this, this unity that makes way for differences, Paul goes on to say that we are to have the same love and to be in full accord, and again, have, have one mind. Paul is repeating himself here in verse two. Same mind, same love, full accord, and again, he says, one mind. Paul's using a preacher's trick of saying the same thing in different ways in order to make the same central point. Paul's using a communicator's tactic of speaking the same message in varying forms in order to drive home the same central theme. He's using a public speaker's tool of conveying the same information from multiple angles in order to impress upon his listeners the same central idea. See what I I did there? That's what Paul is doing. That's what Paul does in in, in verse two, repeats himself. So in verse one, he says, here's the fruit of the gospel in a community, encouragement in Christ, comfort from the love of Christ, participation in the spirit of Christ, affection from Christ, sympathy from Christ. Verse two, he says, you want to experience these things, church? Unity, 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 and oh, did I mention it, unity. But let me take this opportunity to remind us all, me included, that not only the fruit, but also the condition for a church to experience that fruit is itself a gift of the gospel. God doesn't just say, here's the fruit of the gospel, Now, here's the condition, and you work to create this condition. God says, here's the fruit of the gospel, here's the condition, and I will give you that condition. The unity that a church needs is not a unity that a church can make happen. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we've heard this throughout chapter one, uh, produces grace and peace, chapter one, verse two. It produces abounding love, chapter one, verse nine. The gospel also produces all the fruit of righteousness. We heard that. Chapter one, verse 11. This all depends on Jesus all the way. The Christian life never moves on from Jesus. The unity of the church is never attained apart from Jesus. We are utterly dependent upon the intervention of Jesus Christ in our life and in our church at every turn. We're dead, he makes us alive. We're broken, he makes us whole. We're divided, he makes us united. It's a miracle. And when Jesus joins a church, he doesn't just require unity, he bestows unity. And then that church can experience Jesus. So verse one and two, to experience the fruit of the gospel, unity is required and unity is bestowed. When he joins a church, our text also shows us we display the humility of Jesus. We display his humility. Look with me at verses three and four. Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility. The key question for us to ask as those who who want to desire humility, who want to grow in humility, is where am I looking? Where am I looking? 
Because it's hard to be arrogant. It's hard to be proud. It's hard to be full of yourself when you're looking at Jesus. When you're looking at Jesus, the, the perfect, sinless, righteous son of God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father, through him all things were made, giving up his life on a cross. When you, when you look at Jesus, it's hard to be arrogant. It's hard to be full of yourself. Isaac Watts wrote it this way in his familiar hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. That's what begins to happen. The more and more we look at Jesus is we notice our pride, we pour contempt on it. So we want eyes to see Jesus, but not just that. We don't just want eyes to see Jesus. We want Jesus's eyes. When we have Jesus's eyes, we see what he sees and we see how he sees. There's that other hymn that says, be thou my vision, O Lord of my, Lord of my heart. We want eyes to see Jesus and we want Jesus's eyes. And then as this happens, listen to what Paul describes happens in us. Doesn't it sound just like Jesus? Doesn't it sound just like the Jesus we see in the gospels? We're counting others more significant than ourselves and looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of of others, If Jesus, perfect, righteous, sinless son of God could get on his hands and knees and wash the disciples' feet, well, then what is stopping us? Humility is, according to the scriptures, prime evidence of a miraculous unity in the church, which is a fruit of the gospel. Of people who are not looking at their own agendas, their own priorities, my agenda, my priority, but are looking to Jesus Looking around them and at others, we have Jesus' eyes. Humility is hard for us. It's hard for us, but it was even harder for the people to whom Paul was writing. Uh, the church in Philippi, in that culture, in Greek culture, humility was, uh, was not to be pursued. They viewed humility as a debasing of humanity. And Paul writes them, and he addresses us, and he says, pursue humility not in a sense of debasing yourself, not in a sense of debasing humanity, but pursue humility as a result of exalting Jesus. When our focus is on him, when our, when our focus is on elevating Jesus, we pour contempt on all our pride, as Isaac Watts said. It's a miracle. This is a miracle for God to break into my heart, my selfish heart that wants what I want, the way I want it, when I want it, how I want it for God to break into your heart as well, and then for God to break into our corporate heart and orient us to him and orient us to the people around us is a miraculous work of the gospel. It's a gift of grace. This is, again, something that God calls us to do, but as a result of the fruit of the gospel in our lives, it's something God enables us to do. The humility God requires is, guess what? A humility that God bestows. Humility in a church is evidence that Jesus is present in that church because Jesus is humble. You may have heard the joke about the, the man who walked into a really impressive looking church with impressive looking people wearing impressive clothes and he was wearing clothes with holes in them. Uh, he was totally a mess, unshaven, unbathed, didn't smell very good and he kind of caused a scene when he walked in. 
that he didn't fit in, and the members uh, complained, and the pastor came up to him after the service and said, you know, um, I'm glad you're here, but if you'd like to come back next week, I want to ask you to pray and ask Jesus what he'd want you to wear. And so the next week, same thing happened. The guy came back, impressive church, impressive clothing, impressive people, and he's not dressed very impressively, holes in his clothes, unshaven, unbathed. And same thing happens. Pastor says, you know what, I'd be glad for you to come back next week, but could you pray and ask Jesus what he'd like for you to wear? Third week comes, guess what, same thing. Impressive people, impressive church, impressive clothes, same guy, holes in his jeans, unshaven, unbathed. And the pastor's had enough, and he goes up to the guy. And he says, you know, um, have you prayed like I asked you to? And the, and the man said, oh, yes, I have. And the pastor says, well, have you asked Jesus what, what he'd like for you to wear here? And the man says, oh, yes, I have. And the pastor says, well, what did Jesus say you should wear here? And the man said, Jesus said he doesn't know because he's never been here before. (laughs) Ouch. Humility in a church is a sign that Jesus is present in your church because even Jesus is humble. When Jesus joins a church, we experience his presence, we display his humility, and finally in verse five we see this, we know the person of Jesus. Verse five is like a bridge verse, it leads us into a whole new section, which we'll get into next week, but in and of itself, it shows us again that the crowning miracle of a unified church is only possible because God does the impossible. Paul writes this in verse five, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. See how kind our God is to us yet again. How gracious and merciful that he calls us, makes us into his church, and as he does that, he gives us everything we need in the person of Jesus. We're dead, he makes us alive. We're lost, he finds us. We're hopeless, he gives us hope. We're poor and needy, he gives us all the riches of his grace. And on and on and on. God does for us in Christ what we cannot do for ourselves. And he gives us in Christ what we cannot get for ourselves. And verse five is yet another encouragement in this way. Because not only does Jesus give us life and freedom and identity and more, Jesus also gives us his mind. He gives us his mind. Paul doesn't say this, have this mind among yourselves which you will attain by positive thinking. Paul doesn't say, have this mind among yourselves which you will attain by attending a series of Saturday morning workshops. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's like he's saying, drive this car around Fairfax and here are the keys. He's saying, eat this meal together with your family and here's the platter. Go on this adventure around the world and here are the airplane tickets and here's your itinerary and here are your hotel vouchers. God gives us the power to do what God requires of us. Over and over in Philippians, we see this sort of call and response. When you notice it, you you can't stop seeing it. That the gospel declares what has been done and the gospel empowers us to do. When we know Jesus, when we really know him, we live with an utter confidence in the declaration of the gospel of what has been done for us in Christ. And what this does for us is it breaks our addiction to doing something in order to receive something. Christians get into this prison quite often of thinking it's about doing and doing and doing. 
And a lot of non-Christians have this misunderstanding of the gospel, oftentimes because we've done a poor job explaining it to them. The gospel does not proclaim to you, do. The gospel proclaims to you, done. It's done in Christ. Yes, plenty now implications of that, of what we do, but the main pronouncement of the gospel, the main declaration of the gospel is what has been done for us in Christ, which now empowers us to do. You don't do in order to receive. You have received and so you do. The heart of our stewardship campaign this year, by the way, we don't give in order to receive. We have received and so we give. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, dot, 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 which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's a miracle. God provides for us in every way in Christ. He equips you in every way in Christ. He meets every need of yours in Christ. He provides a way for you to do everything he calls you to do in Christ. And through this process of walking in trust and in faith with Christ, we come to know him and know him more deeply and to know him more and more deeply. And as we come to know him, as you come to know him, and this works both individually and corporately, as we come to know Jesus, we begin to realize we have been given What Paul says here, the mind of Christ. This transforms a person and this transforms a church because it makes us one in Christ. We think of him, we think through him, we think like him. Have this mind among ourselves, which has been given to us by grace in Christ. So as we close here, uh, just a reminder that for the church at large and for this church here individually, locally, We are the crowning miracle of the gospel. He has joined us together as his people. And as we walk forward, we're not just following Jesus as as an example or as a guru. We are coming to know him, experience his presence, display his humility, know him, and praise him. We'll do more on that next week. It's all a miracle. And on and on and on in the church, the miracles go. Let me quote this final verse from Paul here from 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you uh, for your good work in us and we ask that you would continue it by your spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would fix us together on that fixed point of reference, Jesus, your son. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would empower us to do what you have called us to do. We ask that you would make us one. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.